the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even as Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfil his promise to her. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you're just joining us, um, over the last uh, few weeks and moving up to Christmas, we are looking at who is Jesus and, and particularly why was he born? Uh, and last week we, we looked at the Gospel of John and we saw that he is the eternal word, the word made flesh who comes and communicates God to us. And this week we move on now to the Gospel of Luke. And Luke introduces for us another title for Jesus here, and that is that he is the Son of God. Now, most people are familiar, I think, with this term to describe Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God. But have you ever thought about what it really means, the Son of God? It's probably more to it than you think. For Luke's uh, very first readers, this would have been a really loaded term back in the first century. Uh, and particularly loaded when that phrase, the Son of God, is paired with this idea that he would be from the line of King David, Israel's most famous king. Uh, put those two things together, and along with this baby son Jesus, you start thinking, if you're a first century person, especially if you're a Jew, that the Messiah may well have finally come. The search for the Messiah has ended. Now, Messiah, another name that we're really familiar with, um, you might think Handel's Messiah maybe, um, but perhaps more likely uh, you think of that other great um, cultural icon of the ages, the life of Brian. You know, Handel, Monty Python, they're about the same level, I think. Uh, and so you think of Life of Brian, you think, of course, that incredible line, he's not the Messiah, is he? He's a very naughty boy. Uh, and in my in research, I had to have another look at that clip from Life of Brian. 
And you, know, you might know the scene if you've seen the movie. Um, Brian, the, the um, kind of unfortunate guy who's got people have got the wrong end of the stick and think that he's the Messiah that's promised. And they all crowd around his house and they come in and he comes out and he kind of addresses them and says, go away, but they don't go away. And then he says this, he says, you don't need a Messiah. You don't need to follow anyone. You've got to figure it out for yourselves. There we have it. Actually, um, Life of Brian gives us a good insight into what a Messiah is. The Messiah is someone you have to follow, someone you have to put your hope and trust in, a deliverer and saviour. But Monty Python's point is that we don't need one. We don't need a Messiah because we have the ability to be our own Messiahs. We have the ability to deliver ourselves. And it sounds like a nice idea, doesn't it? In fact, it's the prevailing idea of Western culture that we can deliver ourselves. And yet it doesn't actually really gel with human experience, does it? Because as much as we might think we can deliver ourselves, we all tend to long for someone to follow. We are encouraged to follow someone to find a Messiah. You know, I might think not that long ago, um, Barack Obama, as he was running for president, was kind of put up as almost like a Messiah. You might remember that iconic photo with his face and just the one word, hope, underneath. What a messianic prophecy if I've ever seen one. Unfortunately, America hoped that he would lead them into this golden age. And yet, unfortunately, that didn't really happen. And now since then, you know, we, we look to other sorts of people to deliver us. Um, I think to technology billionaires are kind of the new political messiahs. We look to Mark Zuckerberg or we look to Elon Musk to save us from the problems of the world, to give us community, to give us relationship, uh, to save us from environmental decay. And millions hope that these people will come through for us, that they will live up to expectation. So even though we would like to think we can kind of figure it out for ourselves, just each individually, actually we all look for a Messiah. We all look for someone to follow, to put our hope in. So the question is, come Christmas time, is not is there a Messiah, but is Jesus the right Messiah, the true Messiah? Is he worth putting our hope in more than anyone else? And I think, yes, he is. And I want to give three reasons why. I want to say that he is more than we observe. He is more than we expect. And he is more than we deserve. Jesus is more than we observe, more than we expect, and more than we deserve. So first, he is more than we observe. How is that case? Well, um, the first thing we notice as we look at Luke in chapter 1 is that Luke, being a great author, begins to draw these deliberate contrasts. He, he brings the greatness of the Messiah and the promise with the lowliness of the events and the setting of his birth. A look at what Luke tells us about Mary. He says, uh, tells us that she's an inhabitant of Galilee. Well, Galilee is kind of a rural area in Israel, and Nazareth is just a little rural town. Now, we might say, you know, from, I don't know, one thaggy in Gippsland, or something like that. Kind of just out in the middle of nowhere, a little town, maybe 400, 500 people, nowhere town, nowhereville. 
But um, even more interestingly, Luke tells us that she is a virgin and that she's engaged to be married to this guy called Joseph. Now, Jewish women were engaged really young and married really young. So what we're looking at probably is someone between 13 and 15 years old. That young. This is just a teenager. She's living with her parents, expecting to get married. A teenage peasant girl from nowhere town, nowhere, engaged to a local tradie. In some ways, if we take away all the things that we know, know, in retrospect, this is a fairly unremarkable thing. Why is that the case? Well, Mary's position in life and society is to be the entrance point for her son. Jesus will be born amongst animals and shepherds, into poverty, and at least to begin with, into obscurity. Because the first 30 years of his life, we don't know much about. He was just a regular guy. This should remind us, perhaps, of what Isaiah the prophet said about the Messiah some uh, 500, 600 years earlier. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So, Messiah was born lowly, but the setting of his birth, while ordinary, is also extraordinary. Because Mary's mother gets a visit from the angel Gabriel. And and the Gabriel says to her, Greetings, you who are highly favoured, the Lord is with you. Now, this is not the first time in the Bible that something like this has happened. In fact, if you look at the biblical story, when God sends angels and messengers and calls people and chooses people, he often tends to put his favor on the loners, the losers, and the lowly of the world. So it's not surprising that Mary, the poor peasant girl, turns out to be actually much more than meets the eye. And I love how she responds to Gabriel, right? This literally this crazy angelic being appears to her in, in glory and, and just stunning. And what does she do? Well, she's confused and perplexed, and we think, fair enough. But she's not confused and perplexed at the angel himself. She's confused at what he says. She's perplexed by the fact that God seems to have big plans, and that those plans are for her. So Gabriel reveals those plans, and they're immense. Mary would give birth to a son, and that son would be the climax of God's saving work for Israel, the ultimate inheritor of God's promise to David. This would be an eternal, kingly Messiah. I'm not sure how much of the kind of theological enormity of what Gabriel says is um, Mary takes in. I'm not sure. But I just love that she just kind of accepts it. And the next question has nothing to do with the the history or the importance of the message, but just the practicality of it. How is this going to happen? How the blazes does a virgin give birth? She's perplexed by this. And actually that perplexing has really not gone away because many people throughout the world, and even Christians, some of them, uh, are still perplexed as to how this could happen and even doubt that maybe it happened at all. But I think this is silly, right? Because if we assume that God is God and powerful and made the world and made Mary, then of course he can do something wonderful and miraculous in her womb. We're not really given the biological details of it. 
which I think is good because what happens is kind of mysterious and, and powerful and wonderful. It's the inner workings of God himself. Literally, just the Holy Spirit will come upon her and God's power will overshadow her and a baby would be conceived in her. And so to all this remarkable news, Mary simply responds, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Are you starting to see the the brilliant contrasts that are drawn here? Jesus is conceived by an unwed mother, but fathered by God himself. He's born into obscurity, but heralded by angels. He will lie in a manger amongst animals, but be visited by the highest in the lands. And he will grow up in anonymity, but will be revealed to all as the greatest who ever lived. We put our trust in all sorts of people to deliver us, to be our messiahs. But the reality is they always turn out to be far less than we observe, right? They come across as big and flashy and and have all these promises and power. And eventually they disappoint. They turn out to be less than what they look like. At best they end up being a bit disappointing. At worst they break our hearts. But Jesus is different. Jesus does the opposite, because at first glance, he's not much to look at. Just an ordinary guy, an ordinary baby. But the more you look, the more extraordinary he becomes. In fact, you could spend your whole life just gazing at him through the words of Scripture, gazing into the story of his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and never once would he be less than he was a moment before. Never once. Jesus is worth putting your hope in. Why? Because he is far more than we observe. But he's also far more than we expect. Uh, the Jewish people, when, when the kind of Luke's writing, the Jewish people had been waiting for centuries for the Messiah. Right? You think that the hype for the last Jedi is pretty kind of up there at the moment. Okay, try waiting for that over a few centuries. <laughs> the, the hype for the Messiah is running high, right? There are all sorts of expectations about what he would be like. And, and biblical prophecy was really well known. So we knew he was to be a king even greater than his ancestor, King David. We knew he was to defeat all of Israel's enemies. And it was kind of naturally assumed that that meant the Roman Empire. He was to restore Israel to some sort of position of political power and influence. He was to make Israel um, prosperous again. This is what people expected from the Messiah. And from the very beginning of the gospel, the weight of these expectations begin to fall on the son of Mary. His name will be Jesus, which means something like the Lord is salvation. He will be a son of the Most High. This is a title used in the Old Testament uh, for someone specially chosen by God. And he will be from the line of King David. He will be an heir to his throne. The kingdom he establishes will last forever and ever. And so as these expectations fall on Jesus, we begin to wonder, can he bear them? (laughs) Can he meet these expectations? 
And it's a fair question, right? Because particularly when we look at the Bible story as a whole, those expectations have been placed on others before him. Over and over again, Israel has had um, heroes and rulers and kings rise up as deliverers and saviors, and each one used by God in a special way. And yet each one has been flawed. Think about it. Abraham was a coward. Moses had anger management issues. Jacob was lustful. Gideon was doubtful. Samson was immature. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Solomon was a womanizer. Heroes, the greatest, raised up by God and yet fatally flawed, each one. And each time a character is introduced into the story, we're meant to think, could this be him? Perhaps this is the one promised, the one who would rescue Israel. And in the story, actually, often they did, at least physically or geographically or politically, they did rescue But it was only ever temporary. None of their deliverances were ever permanent. And perhaps more importantly, none came close to solving what's raised up as the greatest problem of the biblical story, the deepest problem of humanity, the guilt of sin, the existence of evil and injustice, and the final tragedy of death. What the Old Testament teaches us, right up until the story of Jesus, is that no ordinary human saviour can deal with the problems that have eternal consequences. Then that's why Luke 1 is so important. Because it shows us that actually Jesus is no ordinary saviour. If we look at the text, he would be called holy just as God himself is holy. And he's born of a human mother, yes, but also a divine father, God himself. And so he's rightly called the Son of God. Now we might say that it hints at something more, right? But some would say, well, that's not, that's not enough. The title Son of God, and, and rightly so, is sometimes used of humans in the Old Testament, and that's true, but not in this context, because let's keep going. The two most important times in this gospel that Jesus is called Son is actually not by another human, but by a voice from heaven. At his baptism, a voice comes out from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then again, up on a mountain with his disciples, the same voice calls out, This is my Son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. There's something special going on. There's an intimacy with God. And someone will say, well, that's not enough proof that Jesus is divine. Okay, fair enough. I can give you plenty more. But there's one more just from this passage that's often overlooked. Mary goes to see Elizabeth to give her the good news, maybe, and maybe help Elizabeth out in her own pregnancy. And Elizabeth, on seeing Mary, is filled with the Holy Spirit, and she prophesies. And she calls Mary the mother of my Lord. What? Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And then the two verses later she says, Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Lord and Lord. How could it be that the Lord who's in Mary's belly could be the same Lord who has given Mary his promises? Because who gives promises about the Messiah? Who gives promises 
about what he would do to redeem the world. Only God. So it could only be that this little baby is the Lord God himself born into the world. So Jesus the Messiah not only meets all expectations, but he exceeds all expectations. He is glorious. He is the most powerful, the most holy, the most perfect being in heaven or earth. And the incredible news here is that God himself has come to deliver Israel. And of course, the promise is not just for Israel, but for the whole world. God himself has come to redeem and restore the world. And so, no wonder Jesus called throughout the Gospels, he's actually not follow God, but follow me. He's a saviour and a messiah for all people for all time because only he can deal with the ultimate problems of humanity, the guilt we feel, the evil and injustice that we experience, and the great separation of death that is the future for everyone. He can deal with it because he himself is God eternal. He is the eternal son. And so we're invited to put our hopes and our expectations on him because he is always more than we can observe and he's more than we can expect. But he's also more than we can deserve. The Virgin Mary uh, is kind of remembered down through the ages in Christian tradition as this model of just wonderful, pure faith. She hears the the angel Gabriel's promises and simply says, may your word to me be fulfilled. It's wonderful and she's held up as a great example. And yet even Mary would struggle. If we continue reading through the Gospels, what we find is that Mary, the mother of Jesus, at some stage found it difficult to accept that he really was the Messiah. In fact, his whole family did. When faced with the reality of Jesus' ministry, they were like, well, actually, this isn't what we expected. And Mary wasn't the only one to struggle either. See, the Jews didn't want to accept that Jesus was the promised one. They didn't want to accept that he was the heir of David because he was not the Messiah they were expecting. What they expected was a powerful king, a political one, who would take over and defeat Israel's enemies and restore the nation of Israel to its former glory and strength. But what the reality was that God had something much deeper and much more lasting and much more fulfilling than they thought. Instead came a man who refused to take up a leadership position who challenged people to love their enemies, who tore down dividing lines of class and race, who ignored the rich and powerful and instead dined with the infamous and disreputable. Someone who claimed that true religion is not found actually in what you do, but in who you love the most. Jesus confounded all expectations. And so some people just ignored him, some people hated him, and actually in the end they tried to kill him. Even his friends, even those who really did believe, deserted him at the last. 
In some ways, 2,000 years later, not much has changed because we all long for a Messiah. But our tendency, our natural bent is to find one in someone other than Jesus. Because the kind of Messiah we really, really want deep down is actually a Messiah who, will give, who won't ask us to give him anything that we don't want to give. And that's why we turn to pop stars and politicians and tech billionaires and social activists. That's why we turn to them for Messiah, as a Messiah. Because our hope is still to find a human being who will fulfill all our needs without asking us to give up anything of ourselves. The deepest problem that we have is that deep, deep down, we believe Monty Python. <laughs> Brian, the not-quite-Messiah, speaks on behalf of the Western world at least, probably in the whole world in a way, because we, that we don't need a Messiah because we are our own Messiahs that we each have what it takes to deliver ourselves from evil. Of course, that's not true. And we know it should know it by now because well, it hasn't happened. If Jesus is really who he claimed to be, the Messiah of the world and God himself, then imagine how awful this must be to him, that the people he made and came to save preferred themselves over him, preferring cheap counterfeits to the real deal. And family, this is why Jesus isn't just more than we observe or more than we expect. He's also more than we deserve. He's more than we deserve because we continually chase others. There's one last theme that runs through Luke 1 that I haven't mentioned yet until now. Uh, When the angel comes to Mary, he calls her, what? Highly favoured. That she has found favour with God. And that word for favour is actually the same word for grace. Mary found grace with God. And then later when Elizabeth faced with the mother of Jesus, what does she do? She explains, why am I so favoured that the Lord, mother of the Lord would come to me? What have I done to deserve this? Who am I that this should happen to me? And the answer actually is nothing. These words are the opening phrases of what would swell to become a symphony of undeserved grace. That Mary was not any more worthy to bear the Son of God than Elizabeth was to witness it happening. Those that took up the call to follow him were not worthy. Neither were those he healed, neither were those he freed. The world was not actually worthy to receive the Son of God. And yet he came anyway. So the most deserving person who ever lived came to an unworthy world to give them a gift they did not deserve. If we read through to the end of the story, Jesus is hanging on the cross and the the Jewish rulers are there and they're sneering at him. And sarcastically they cry out, he saved others, so let him save himself if he truly is God's Messiah, the chosen one. He saved others, he can't save himself, but they missed it. They missed the whole point. The whole point of the gospel message is actually Jesus was there, not actually saving others by allowing himself not to be saved but abandoned. God's plan was for his eternal son to die as a mortal man so that those who did not deserve him might be saved through him. 
You might have heard the parable of the man who fell down a hole. He's down this deep hole and, and a, a friend walks by at the top of the hole and he shouts out, friend, friend, come and, and help me, help me out, lift me out. And the friend jumps down to the hole. He's like, what do you do that for? You idiot. Why would you do that? What, what possible sense could that make? And the friend turns to him and says, ah, oh, yes, but I've been down here before and I know the way out. Jesus came down the hole for us so that in him and through him and following him, we could be brought out. He is the, he is the best kind of Messiah. A Messiah who is not born into the hole but willingly chose to come into the hole so that we might follow him into his glorious light. He led his people out of the darkness of death and so to do that he had to die. He had to come down into the deep dark valley so that we might be led out by him. And friends, that's what it means to put your hope in Jesus, the eternal son. It's to trust him like the man trusted his friend in the hole. It's to trust him that Jesus can lead us through all of life's dangers and despairs and disappointments. Why? Because he went there first. He's been through the darkest night and he rose again into glory and light. And his promise is that in him, through faith in him, we will be led out too. He's the best kind of Messiah. He's one who is more than we observe. He's one who is more than we expect. And he's one who is more than we deserve. And yet because of the good news of grace, he is the one that we have been given. This month, this Advent, this celebration of the coming of the King, remembering that he has come, is a time for us to Renew that faith to again follow the Messiah who was born and died. Perhaps to put our faith in him for the first time. And for all of us to praise our God for his incredible and eternal grace to us. The God who gave himself for us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, the good news of the gospel is truly good. It's not just news, it's, it means it changes everything. It changes everything to know that by ourselves we cannot be our own Messiah. We cannot be a son of God. We need another, one who is greater than us, to lead us through a greater problem than we can ever hope to solve. Father, may we see Jesus as the eternal son this morning and this Christmas and through our lives to once again put our hope in him to once again renew our vow to follow him through everything, to put aside human messiahs that are no good, that just are blind guides leading blind people. And let us put our trust, Father, help us, Holy Spirit, put our trust in Jesus, the only one who can be our true messiah. Amen.